1 Corinthians chapter 8, reading from verses 1 to 13. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is God's word. Good morning. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here, and it's lovely to have you with us this morning. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Uh, Father God, we, uh, we do ask that you would help us this morning to have hearts like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would look at one another and long to serve and love. That we would not be those who are marked by a desire to have my way, but a desire to see others grow. Amen. Look, the, uh, this morning we are looking at one of the most pressing issues for us as a church in London in 2019, which is this. Should we, as Christians, eat food that has been sacrificed to Zeus? I can see a number. Oh, finally, I've been at church for ages, and you're finally addressing the question that's just been burning in my heart for so long. Well, this is your lucky morning. 
Actually, the, at the heart of this passage, there is an issue which actually really does burn into the hearts of every single one of us. Is your decision-making, is my decision-making driven by pleasing me or serving others? Oh, now that is an issue that's right at the heart of all of us. See, 21st century culture has become much, much more about me. I, I don't mean Phil. I'd love it if it was, but it's, a, it's, not about, it's about each of us. We're each at the center of the story. The, the growth of social media has enabled us to do that, to place myself at the center of my curated, presented story, to live as if I'm at the heart of everything. You see it all the time. An advert for, I saw of... Um, Shopping advert came in, and it was uh, already Christmas. This was already looking past Christmas extraordinarily. It says, you know, Christmas is all about having to buy stuff for others, but don't worry, the Boxing Day sales will soon be here when you can buy for me. You know, that's what we really want. I read uh, Glenn Harrison's book, The Big Ego Trip, recently, and uh, the psychiatrist Glenn Harrison points out that we are, we're a culture that's increasingly obsessed with my individual needs and my need to shine. He says that by the end of year two, an average child has completed five projects in school, five major projects, which are all about me, me and who I am, me and what I love. Five projects by the end of year two. We live in an age of entitlement. And so we struggle to make reasonable adjustment for others because our assumption is that the most important person for me to love is me. The most important issues for me to deal with are mine. There was a, it was really, um, it was brought home. It's not just a millennial issue. It's a, it's, it's a whole cultural issue. And it was really brought home, I think, uh, a few years ago with the knee defender hoo-ha. Do you know what knee defenders are? They're these uh, little plastic things that you stick in when you're flying cattle class into the seat in front on the aeroplane. And it stops the person in front reclining. And uh, there was a, a United Airlines flight, and a guy called James Beach put on the knee defenders because he was quite a big guy and didn't want the person in front uh, reclining back onto his knees. And the woman in front spoke to the cabin crew and said, uh, look, I can't recline my seat. I paid for this seat. I paid for a seat that can recline. Can you get him to remove them? The cabin crew required him to remove them. And so he did, and she <laughs> launched back. He spoke to the cabin crew. They said, there's nothing we can do. So he shoved forward. She stood up and threw a can of Sprite over him. What neither of them did was talk to the other. Neither of them spoke to the other. I'm entitled to my legroom. I'm entitled to recline. That's it. It's all about me. And I don't want to engage with anybody else. I don't want to have a, a debate. I have my rights and I will do them. And I will do what I want. And everybody else can accommodate themselves around me. I'm at the center of the universe. And you need to orbit around me and my needs. That's the attitude. I guess, uh, I hope, none of us are quite that crass. But this passage challenges us. Is my decision-making and my fundamental attitudes, especially when I come to church, are they shaped by my needs and what I want or a desire to see other people, and especially those who are younger in the Christian faith, grow and flourish? That's what it's about. And it's no great surprise because at the heart of the Christian faith is a God who reveals himself not to be me and my rights, 
but a God who poured himself out. As we read uh, just after the confession, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And then he poured himself out to death. A God who's defined by self-sacrifice, not self-service. And this passage challenges us. If I follow a God like this, a God of self-sacrifice, not self-service, is that how I live? To be a mature Christian, he says here, means you respect the convictions and the conscience of others by giving up your freedom. Where we land uh, in verse 13 is, look, if eating a steak might damage another Christian, I will become a vegetarian for the rest of my life. Now, for some of us, that is a shocking statement and a sacrifice we never imagined we might have to undergo. But that's what Paul says here. Now, we're, we're back in 1 Corinthians after a little break. And Paul is addressing questions that are being asked of the church. So they've written to him with a whole bunch of questions. And in particular in chapters 8 to 11, the questions are about how we use our freedom as Christians. We're free from the, the, so many of the rules and the, and, the, and the foolish laws that humans come up with when we turn to follow Jesus Christ. We're set free of that. And they're saying, okay, how do we use our freedom? Who should we be serving? So in chapter 8, Paul says, look, as free people, use your decisions to build up others. Be careful about the impact you have on others. In chapter 9, think about the impact you have on those who are not yet Christians. In chapter 10, think about the impact on your own spiritual health. And in chapter 11, think about the impact that your behavior has on the glory of God. Now, some decisions in the Bible are pretty clear. Should I rob the bank? Should I murder my boss? No is the answer to both of those, if you're in any doubt. No. But other things are, well, we're free, and they require wisdom. And so the Bible says, when you're working out those things, where there's no clear yes or no answer, what principles should we apply? And in those things where we're free, we're told that we should consider the impact of our actions on other Christians. Chapter 8. Now, the issue of meat consumption has never been a presenting issue at Christchurch Mayfair. We've never had the church lunch boycotted by Vegans for Christ. It's just not happened yet. Uh, no one said to me, look, I'm just giving up my Christian faith because there was salami served after the service. That's it. it it's not an issue for us. But in Corinth, this really matters. Let me just explain why, so you can see what's going on, and then I think we'll start to understand the relevance. So in Corinth, the church has basically come out of a pagan background. So the people who are Christians, who are gathered as we are this morning to worship Jesus, they'd grown up worshipping Zeus and Poseidon and Hermes and all the other pantheon of Greek gods. And now they've turned away from idolatry from worshipping those gods, and they're worshipping Jesus Christ. Now meat, for them was a rare thing. It was much more expensive, and mainly what happened with meat was it would be sacrificed to an idol as part of a worship service to Zeus and then sold off in the supermarkets. So if you're eating meat, most of the time it has been sacrificed to Zeus or Hermes or Athena or Aphrodite or whatever. But there was a particular... What made it more complicated for them is that... If you refused to eat meat offered to idols, there would be a cost. It wasn't just, well, I could just become a a vegetarian. And that means there's no issue of, has this meat been sacrificed to an idol or not? Because it could have a real cost to your career and your social standing. 
Because pagan temples often had dining rooms attached to them, because, uh, which sounds weird to us, but it's just the way it was. And the, the trade guilds would be attached to the temples. So uh, I had lunch with a couple of friends of mine recently at the Institute of Directors, and it was an entirely secular occasion. We didn't have to bow to offer our steak sandwich to the almighty God of corporate greed at the Institute of Directors. It, just, it doesn't work like that. Some people probably think it does, but it doesn't. It was, it was an entirely secular occasion. Back then, something like the Institute of Directors or the, um, or the Chartered Surveyors or whatever it is, or the Guild of Teachers, whatever trade you belong to, would be attached to a temple. And so if you met for a job interview or if you met to, to meet up with other people for networking, the food that would be served would have come straight from the temple. Now, that's complicated. And for a young Christian, I say, oh, gosh, I, I, I don't like this. I worship Jesus now. I, I can't eat meat that I know has just been offered to Zeus. Well, that might mean missing out on business. Or the other place you might eat meat uh, would be at the house of wealthy friends. The very, only the very wealthy would have been able to afford it. So to say I'm not going to eat meat because I'm, I'm worried about it being sacrificed to idols would have meant you're basically turning down the only invitations you get to a Michelin star restaurant. It, there's a cost. There's a cost. Now, again, this is, the issue here is, is not something where it's clearly right or wrong. So I had a friend who uh, phoned me, I remember, he'd become a Christian quite recently, and he phoned me saying, look, my, most, my biggest client has just gone into a strip club with one of my competitors. What do I do? I said, no, you can't go in. You've got to trust God and not go in. This is different. That was right or wrong. This is, well, the Bible doesn't say that you, you can't eat this meat. The issue is in the conscience of the individual where they, don't, they, they find it impossible to, to separate this meat they're eating from the fact that it was sacrificed a while ago to an idol. Paul will say, look, it's not really an issue. You don't need to worry. But their conscience doesn't yet understand that. Now, what are the issues then for, for us? Before we get in, let me show you. That there are some places where this does bite already. So this is a slightly lazy way of thinking, but um, broadly, the, the questions I've been asked in, the, in, in my years at CCM, there have been more Western issues at consumption of alcohol. Um, can you go out uh, to nightclubs? Uh, how much material accumulation is, is, is okay? Can I buy a new car or should I only buy secondhand cars? Is it okay to do yoga? All sorts of questions like that. And then the, the more Eastern questions, quite often um, I get asked about, look, it's a funeral of a grandparent, and there's going to be ancestor worship involved in the funeral. Should, should I go? Can I, can I attend? If I don't, the family is going to be really offended. So there are issues that we recognize where, oh, okay, it's not clearly right or wrong, but Christians can have consciences that do or don't let them do it. How do you work it out? Right, that's a long time for introduction, but I hope you see where we're going. Let's, uh, let's look through the passage. You've got an outline which will help you see where we're going. Love matters more than knowledge. That's the first thing that we're going to learn. Love matters more than knowledge. So chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Now about Paul's writing in response to an issue they've, they've raised. You see the same thing in 7.25, now about virgins. In 12.1, now about spiritual gifts. 
So I think what's happened, when you look at uh, verse 4, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one. Paul is quoting what they've written. So I think what's happened is one group at Corinth has written a chunk of a letter to Paul and said, look, there's a bunch of people with oversensitive consciences saying we cannot eat meat that's come from the temples. It's ridiculous. Uh, Can you please tell them to stop being so extra and let us enjoy our steak? And before Paul addresses who's right and who's wrong, he says, look, actually, who has the correct understanding here is not the only or even the most important issue. Knowledge matters, but love is supreme. Love is the key Christian virtue. Paul is not anti-knowledge. He's written a carefully reasoned letter. And in 10.1, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of facts about Israel's history. 12.1, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Knowledge is good, but only if it's driven by love. First one's a vivid image. We know that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. He said, knowledge on its own without love is like a great big balloon. Looks hugely impressive. It's enormous. But try building on it. Nothing. Whereas love is like concrete girders, steel and concrete girders, that you can build a lasting, strong structure upon. So he says, knowledge on its own, it just puffs you up. Empty hot air. Love. Love enables you to be built up with steel girders. Verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. So you think you're superior because you have more Bible knowledge. You don't know the first thing at all if love is not at the key. When Jesus was asked, what's the first and greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You don't know anything if love is not at the heart of what you do. And then we expect verse 3 to read slightly differently from how it does. Building on from that, you expect, but whoever loves God knows what truly matters. But he doesn't say that, does he? He humbles them yet further and says, whoever loves God is known by God. Love matters more than knowledge. And what's more, the most important knowledge is not what you know about God in your infinite Bible knowledge. The knowledge that matters most is that God knows you his relational knowledge of you. And God only knows, in that sense, relates to those who love him. So I pray, um, I pray every week that CCM would be a church with deep, rich biblical knowledge. I oversee the, the midweek Bible study groups, and I pray that there would be a place where we dig deeply into the rich treasures of all the Bible teachers about God. But I pray much more that we'd be a church that loves uh, back in uh, 2001, when we planted the church, Matt was a, was a bright-eyed, eager young ministry intern. Um, I was uh, working just over in, in the city, and he met up um, halfway through the, the first year that we were uh, existing as a church with the head of um, the university's work in London, UCCF, uh, about Christian student work, because we were thinking of starting a new Christian group at Imperial College. I remember Matt telling me uh, later that year about the conversation he had He's asking what he needed to know. And the guy told him at one point, at Church X, they know their Bibles better than any other students in London, but they are so arrogant, no one will learn from them. 
Their knowledge is useless at serving others. Ouch. Don't try to guess which church that was. <laughs> it was 15 years ago. It's, I'm sure things have changed. But knowledge is important, but love matters more. Knowledge without love is useless. Useless. And now he gets into the, the details, having established that idols are not real, verses 4 to 6. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. Paul agrees with the knowledge light. He says they're right. Zeus, Poseidon, Venus, they're not real. He would say the same of Allah and Krishna and Rama. They're not real. They don't exist. Verse 5, he acknowledges there are lots of so-called gods and lords, but there is only one God who is Father. There is only one God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that's not the same belief as Jews or Muslims or other religions. I don't want to cause offense this morning, but I do want to respect people of other faiths, some of whom may be here enough to recognize we believe different things. I'm not going to insult you by saying, no, 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 we all believe the same thing. We must say it graciously, but as a follower of Jesus, I can't deny the truth. There is only one God, and that other so-called gods are not real. Now, that's no more arrogant than the atheist who said there's no gods at all, or than the Muslim who says Allah is the, the one true God. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves the Bible's claim that there is one God, the God of the Bible, and he made everything, and he is the one in whom we live. Idols are not real, therefore. Paul says, look, don't worry about, the meat's been sacrificed to nothing, so don't worry about it. But, but, that's not the end of the argument, because some think they are real. Verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So imagine uh, Marcus, converted from a pagan background, and for 30 years, Marcus has eaten meat offered to Zeus and thought that as he ate that meat, he was worshipping Zeus. Now Marcus has become a Christian and he's got rid of everything to do with his previous pagan worship. And he should know that idols are nothing. He should know that the meat is not contaminated by the fact that some priest said some words over it. It doesn't magically change the meat. But his conscience is tender. And he, he, he can't eat the meat without thinking about uh, worshipping Zeus. And so he avoids it entirely. So imagine what happens. Uh, Marcus is uh, walking along the street and he sees a potential client. And the client says, oh, come and have a kebab at Poseidon's Grill. And he says, mm, Ari, I know I shouldn't, but I don't want to miss out on the client. Oh, oh, go on then. He's not saying, I understand an idol is nothing and this is okay. He's saying, getting ahead in my career matters more than honoring Jesus. That's what he's saying. And so his conscience is defiled. Paul's not writing about the person who understands the idol is nothing. He's writing about the person who, whose head still thinks the idol is something. 
And so verse 8, the problem isn't what the food does to us, but what we do with our conscience. And that is a problem. He's saying, look, the danger is that for some people to eat meat that's come from the temples, for them it, it, it actually it feels like they're worshipping an idol. And so they must not do that. And so he, he commands those who are mature, don't destroy them, verses 9 to 12. Now, the really striking thing at this point is Paul does not say, so these are the passages of Scripture to turn to, and this is the argument to use to show them they're being stupid and they just need to get over themselves. His application is all to the attitude of the supposedly mature, verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple... Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Stumbling block in the New Testament is not a a wonky bit of pavement you trip over and sue the council for. It is always something that makes you fall away from faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 9 or or 1 Peter 2, for instance. So imagine uh, Marcus says, says to his client, actually, you know what? Much as I would really love to talk about that deal, I... I now, I now follow Jesus, and I don't feel right about eating meat that's been sacrificed to Zeus. And the client says, fine, whatever, walks off. <sighs> Marcus feels, oh, great, lost the business. And the next day, as he's walking down the road, he sees a gang from church tucking into spare ribs at Poseidon's Grill. Hang on, I thought we should avoid idol worship. But here's a bunch of mature Christians, and they're all doing it. I guess it's all right to compromise. Fine, okay, I don't need to worry. See, he's not convinced, oh, okay, uh, it's not really idol worship. He just, he'll see them and think, it's fine to compromise. I can worship idols and Jesus, it's not such a big thing. Which is why Paul warns, verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Their faith is ruined. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Ouch. Christ was willing to die for them, but you're not willing to give up eating meat in public. Wow. Eat meat in your own home. Don't do it in a way which is going to offend them. Now, in what sense is the the young Christian destroyed? I think it is because they're learning, oh, it's okay to ignore your conscience and do things you know are wrong. You know, if the, if the cost is particularly great, just compromise. Or they're perhaps learning, uh, you don't actually have to just worship Jesus. You can worship Jesus and some other idols. It's not a big deal. They're learning to disobey Jesus and to disobey their conscience. And note who it is that ends up sinning. You, verse 12, you the mature one, you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience. But it's not just them you sin against, it's Christ who died for them. Eating meat sacrificed to an idol is not a sin. Damaging the conscience of a young Christian, oh, that's a serious sin, Paul says. He's not saying never ever do anything that upsets another Christian. That would make life very difficult. It's more serious. It's don't do things that will offend or destroy the conscience of another Christian. And so he closes by saying, look, give up anything for them. Verse 13, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause them to fall. Wow. 
I used to serve at a South African church. A verse like that was read. There'd be a sharp intake of breath right around the room. He's saying, look, I will give up any of my rights to protect the conscience and convictions of a weak Christian. Okay, what does this mean in practice for you and me? As I said, I want to look at what the the passage says and then think about the application rather than pretend it says something that sounds more relevant. It is about idol worship and meat. But what does it mean in practice? Firstly, this is not about doing something unbiblical. So someone says, you should stop sleeping with your boyfriend. And you respond, oh, your conscience is weak. Mine is strong. Don't judge me. Anyway, I only do it in private, so it doesn't concern you. Well, good for you. I'm glad you do. But no, the Bible is clear. Sex is for marriage only. We're not free to differ on this. This isn't a, well, you view it this way, I view it that way. It's right and wrong, and that is wrong. So Paul is not talking about any issue Christians might disagree on. He's talking about issues where the Bible says we're free. Secondly, where the issue is one of freedom, obey your conscience. Do you see throughout? He said, don't make someone go against their conscience. You've got two duties to your conscience when you look through the Bible. One is to obey it. Because your conscience is your sense of what is right and what is wrong. And you should never do what you know to be wrong. So obey your conscience. And two, educate it. So that your conscience is more closely aligned to the Bible. But the most important is to obey it. So 1 Corinthians 4.3, Paul says, My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me right. God is the only perfect judge, not my conscience. So obey your conscience and educate it, but obey it. Thirdly, what about my duty to the conscience of somebody else? When you think someone else is being oversensitive, you know, Delida in your home group was a seriously heavy drinker before they became a Christian and has now resolved never to drink alcohol again. Your main job is not to dissuade Delilah by always making sure there's a nice bottle of very fine burgundy at home group. Your job is to love Delilah. And to make sure that, you know, you forego your passion for Blue Nun when a home group around. Go teetotal when she's there. Enjoy some schlur. Um, Because your job is to love her, to see her built up. Or Rick was an obsessive materialist, uh, just spending, 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 living for money. And when he became a Christian... He's, he just resolved, look, luxury is just inappropriate as one who knows that time is short and that there are many Christians starving around the world and that the gospel needs to go out everywhere. Your job is not to persuade him. No, 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 it's all right to spend a bit more on yourself. Your job is to love him and not to cause him to stumble by rubbing your own materialism in his face. So perhaps think twice about inviting him on your skiing holiday in Whistler uh, for 3,000 each. Because it's just going to make him think, oh, okay, it's all right to go against your conscience. Instead, perhaps invite him to a, a simpler holiday. Go camping in Wales. Nothing says holiday like camping in Wales. Uh. But your job is to protect their conscience. See, it takes time for tender consciences to grow and to work things out. It takes time. But they will never grow and they will never work things out if they're crushed. And our aim must be to build up in love, not to stand on my rights. 
And so the broad principle for you and for me is, am I willing to inconvenience myself to forego my rights to help younger Christians grow? It might be at the sharp end like this. uh, There'll be particular issues that they're uncomfortable with, but much more generally too. Am I willing to put myself out so that others grow, so that others are helped, so that others are nurtured? You know, if you've got very small children, you might forego eating hot chili because they just can't take it. And so it's kind to eat something that's bland so that they can eat as well as you. When you've got baby Christians around you, you want to be kind and gentle and help them so that they can grow mature and strong. Now, I don't know the specific circumstances of our lives, and I don't know where this might bite for each one of us in that sense. But I think for most of us, the struggle is not so much that oh, I'm just not sure what situations are the right situations that the principle applies in. The struggle for most of us is, if you're anything like me, I'm just self-centered and I just can't be bothered to put others first. I don't want to give up my freedoms for the sake of others. And the solution for us, well, the solution is to look to the cross and to see how Jesus gave up his rights for us to see how Jesus poured himself out to save us. In your relationships with one another, Paul writes in Philippians 2, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is marked by, defined by self-sacrificial love. Help us, we pray, who follow you to live in the same way. Help us to love others, not crush the tender consciences. Help us to be a church that is defined not by arrogant knowledge, but by humble, other person serving, self-sacrificial love. And we pray that as we do this, young Christians might grow mature and strong and confident and joyful, and that we might be a church that pleases you. Amen.